is Planet FM 104.6 Radio Shalom and we're welcoming Rabbi Brent back to continue talking about the fascinating subject of Maimonides. Thank you Rabbi Brent. And we left uh, talking about Maimonides' life and how busy he was and I just wondered as he was writing all this things he was he was a member of the community did the jewish community accept all his writings i mean did they revere him and so on and how did it spread how did people know about it like they didn't have the internet well his, his works were were disseminated and and copied and transmitted and carried to communities throughout the jewish world um and there is um Generally, an understanding that uh, he was respected and um, regarded with high esteem for his uh, Jewish knowledge. On the other hand, there were certainly some uh, tensions uh, in the uh, relations he had with uh, at least one person in, in particular. The the acting Gaon um, uh, was not... Um, uh, terribly fond with him, disagreed. With, no, and, and and disagreed with him on an, uh, um, a number of issues. I mean, one of the the most uh, prevalent disagreements that arose between the two was a discussion of of whether um, a Jew was permitted to be on a journey at sea over the Sabbath, and whether they could observe the Sabbath while at sea. Um, traveling during Shabbat is is uh, not permitted traditionally. Um, however, Maimonides uh, made a statement that he permitted someone who was on a long sea journey uh, to as his brother was to be able to have that journey um, occur during the uh, during the Sabbath. So, and um, that that got them into a little bit of a, a war of letters between each other. Um, the, the other uh, part of him and his acceptance was that um, you know, he's someone who I mentioned in our last uh, uh, conversation spent um, time writing both philosophical and uh, halakhic, that's Jewish, um, legalistic ritual works. Uh, and um, the, uh, the Jewish legal works he wrote were you know, seen as, as astonishing for their scope and their succinctness, um, despite criticisms that we mentioned about uh, not bringing into those the, the, the sources of his writing. Uh, on the other hand, his, his philosophical um, writing was, was somewhat more radical. And uh, you know, this led to an um, uh, opinion which still can be found in, in some traditional circles that uh, Jews are only permitted to study the halakhic works of Maimonides and that the philosophic works are not to be touched. You know, they're, uh, they're a sore. They're forbidden. Well, at that time, too, they, uh, they didn't really like outside influences. They were scared that outside influences would change. And they, I don't know if it was a power thing that the, the leaders and the rabbis at the time didn't want you know, like the Enlightenment to come. And so his ideas of Aristotle and so on would have not been... Yeah, there, There is this challenge between um, the intellectual elite, so to say, and the masses, for sure. 
Um, and it's, it's something that Maimonides was very, very acutely aware of uh, when he wrote his Guide for the Perplexed. Um, I joked when we we mentioned the the guide before and and its name that uh, it's a book that uh, despite being called the guide for the perplexed can actually leave someone more perplexed upon what? reading it uh, than before they started. What what's perplexing about it? It's it's a very esoteric piece of literature, um, but beyond that, Maimonides because he was aware of how controversial. Uh, many of the the statements that he was making was concealed those statements um, using uh, cryptic. You know, cryptic methods. <laughs> yes, like the spies. <laughs> well, yes. I mean, you find he he would write multiple times on the same topic in different areas of the guide for the perplexed, mm-hmm. and the two times that he would write would contradict each other, and he did it intentionally. Mm-hmm. Um, trying to confound anyone who was not um, at a level sufficient enough to be able to understand with maturity the content of what he was trying to convey. So it was a safeguard. Yeah, yes, it was a safeguard. Um, you know, there, there were other aspects that um, uh, made this uh, controversial as well in, in that um, Two of the most significant uh, theological doctrines of, of Judaism, um, which uh, have very strong mystical um, uh, corollaries, Maase Vereshit, the acts of, of creation, and Maase Merkava, the account of the divine chariot that's described in Ezekiel, um, were uh, topics that he wished to be able to discuss in his philosophy, and yet at the same time, there was a, um, a halachic um, a provision that forbid forbid teaching the Maase uh, Vereshit, the the um, acts of creation in, in this mystical sense, to more to two people, and the uh, a provision also forbade the teaching of Maase Merkava to even one individual. So, who did the forbidding? This, these were um, uh, halachot, these were uh, laws that came through rabbinic um, uh, literature about one was, what one was permitted to and what one was not permitted to teach. And uh, because the nature of these two um, uh, works um, was so controversial in Jewish circles um, because of their, their mystical content that contradicted so central doctrines. Them? It's a, a good question. It's a good question. Um, there are bodies of literature, first of all, so there's multiple writing, writers to, to both. Um, these were things that were written uh, sometime during the first millennia. Um, there's uh, um, certainly a lot of rabbinic literature that, that uh, appears with a certain slant of reading. Um, to contradict them in particular, uh, there's a, a theory by David Aaron, uh, Professor David Aaron at Hebrew Union College, um, that the book Bereshit Rabbah, the rabbinic book of approximately the 5th century of the Common Era, was written as a response um, uh, to these mystical practices on on the um, 
uh, periphery of mainstream Jewish practice. That was before Kabbalah? Kabbalah, this was certainly before Kabbalah. Mm. Um, you know, we, we talk about Kabbalah, that's a practice of the, the 13th and, and mm. later centuries. So was this, this an early version of it? Um, Kabbalah takes many of its influences mm. from uh, from Merkava mm. mysticism and, and from uh, Maase Bereshit for sure. For sure, there's a, um, a line of Jewish mysticism uh, that stretches all the way backwards and, and, and forwards through Jewish history. And, and is that from Svat? Well, okay, so the story of Kabbalah is, is, is complex. Um, uh, Moshe de Leon was the author of the Zohar, and he wrote in uh, northern Spain, actually close to Provence, where um, uh, some of Maimonides' strongest followers were. Um, the activity around Kabbalah and, and Sfat was Isaac Luria, um, who uh, developed this this idea of, of clay pot and, and um, more complex I- ideas of, of mysticism a, a bit later. Um, you know, th- there's a differentiation that, that should be understood between what mysticism does and what philosophy does, mm-hmm. though, because Maimonides was primarily a, a philosopher, um, and uh, these mystical texts had an influence on um, the way that uh, we we understand theologically the idea of creation um, and of God's presence in the, the world, how uh, God exists in uh, a sphere um, that is superimposed over reality, sort of in, in Mer- uh, Masse Merkava. Um, a, a mystic, though, attempts to do something different. He's not looking for rational understanding. He's looking primarily to experience um, and to access yeah. these these hidden realms um, that are concealed within nature. That's not what he was writing about when he was. No, concealed. certainly not. That's that's later than Maimonides, mm. and the Zohar hadn't been um, written yet, <laughs> hadn't been thought about, and, and Kabbalah <clears throat> was not mm. a, a, a topic of discussion either. Mm. Um, those had their influence a bit later in, in Jewish history. But I thought history. that they were, might have been influenced by Maimonides if, uh, if he was cryptically... Well, you, know, you, you, you take um, uh, philosophy and mysticism, they all, both have one key similarity, actually. It's that both of them look for hidden meanings in the text. The only difference mm-hmm. is that when it's philosophy, the hidden meaning they're looking for is a philosophical, intellectual, rational um, a truth hidden within the text. When you look at mysticism, the thing that's hidden is a, a, a mystical, esoteric, occult um, bit of wisdom uh, that uh, is you know, hidden between the layers of the text. Mm-hmm. So Maimonides was certainly on the philosophic side and, and not a mystic by any stretch of the imagination. But philosophy, you can either you accept it or you don't f- accept somebody's philosophy or you agree with some and you disagree with mm. other bits. But how did he... He must have had some tremendous something to have been the influence that to this day he's revered. Well, if we were to talk specifically about mm. the guide for the perplexed mm. and, and what was so remarkable about that work, we are... Um, 
we, we first have to recognize that in the time that it was it was written, it was revolutionary. Um, the guide for the perplexed introduced an idea that God was non-corporeal, um, that uh, God had no body, um, that um, uh, God couldn't be conceived of in this way at all. Um, as having an image, having a body, having you know, any of these things. And um, yet, uh, that was a controversial opinion in the time. Still today, and it's now the dominant idea. I mean, Maimonides has, has won that battle, and the idea that God is non-corporeal is, is well accepted and regarded within Jewish circles. Um, part of, of what the guide attempts to do, uh, in fact, the, the main aim of the guide is to assist individuals who are Jewish, um, who have learned uh, Jewish practices and um, have been faithful, and yet because of their knowledge and awareness of philosophy and modern science and um, uh, disciplines that contain truths that seem to contradict the literal meaning of parts of the Bible and rabbinic literature, uh, he, he wrote this guide to um, try to persuade them that it was worthwhile to continue their Jewish practice and that in, indeed in all of the Bible and all of rabbinic um, writing and Jewish thought, there had to be some central point that was coherent uh, and could be accepted as truth. And uh, so this led him to develop uh, certain doctrines, notably about um, uh, God and about creation and about prophecy um, that were hugely influential. So what he really, Jimmy <coughs> did a Reader's Digest. What's that? He did a Reader's Digest. Um, yes, for, for these individuals, it was a Reader's Digest that, that as we said, was... Um, written very cryptically uh, and very confusingly so that uh, someone who would find the things that he was saying heretical, you know, to, to say that um, uh, despite the many times that God is described as having, you know, walking on earth in the Garden of Eden or sitting on a throne in, in, in Exodus or on a divine chariot as a warrior in Ezekiel, that you know, God can does not have a body or an image. Um, Could have been manifestations. Well, this is not what Maimonides wanted to believe. <laughs> it could have been, but that's not what he wanted to believe. It, part part of the reason why these ideas had developed is that uh, we're told that God created man in Genesis, but Selim Elohim in the image of God. And so logically, one would think that if God created man... In the image of God, God created man with a body. Therefore, God must have a body as well. Not so. Uh, Maimonides devotes a section of his guide to the perplexed to demonstrate that this word betselem in the image of uh, actually relates more abstractly uh, to the nature of or to the intellect um, of man. And, and so uh, humans are created in the image of God and that they have the faculties of reason in order to understand the world. Uh, I thought it was the soul. 
Well, there's an, another interesting discussion about the soul. Um, Maimonides actually withdrew criticism for this statement uh, that he made even in the, the Mishnah Torah that he had not clearly stated that um, the body uh, should be resurrected in the time of the, the Messiah. He, he you know, argued and wrote a letter um, uh, Gerrit Amida trying to, to say that he did in fact believe uh, that the body would be resurrected but uh, the the book the Mishnah Torah talked more directly about the immortality of the soul which of course is a topic that we know from Greek philosophy uh, to be very um, uh, well accepted so how is it today that there are still study circles uh, studying Maimonides. Mm. He, he left us a lot to study. <laughs> he left us a lot to so study. Even in the modern world, it's... Mm-hmm. Um, Maimonides, for his time, was very much ahead of the curve uh, and, and had a huge influence Um at, at the same time, you know, those interested in, in studying Maimonides should know that uh, aspects of him certainly reflect his time and not our um, modern knowledge or, or values. Um, his, uh, his understanding of what women's place in society should be is um, you know, not uh, what we would expect in, in our era of women's rights and, um, and women's suffrage. Uh, and uh, other areas like his, his practice of medicine um, is very much couched in the medical understanding of his time. So he's still talking about the uh, the four fluids, the, the four phlegms that uh, comprise the body um, and uh, using medieval techniques to practice medicine, um, which... Which is understandable because it was his term, but this is also part of... You know, you you say people made commentaries and and the, the discussion and the dialogue is going on through the centuries. But when we look at today with today's knowledge and today's ex- uh, changes so much, mm-hmm. how come we we don't accept that things have to change? I don't, you know that that. Ideas and concepts that were those days, you say you halakhically wrote down mm. what should be the practice. And this is, they say, this is what you've got to do and this is what you're forbidden to do. But nowadays that can't, can't be relevant because we don't accept so easily anymore to be told what is forbidden and what you can do and what you can't do. Well, I, it, it depends what... Um uh, primacy you give Jewish law and certainly there are um, many many Jews who uh, still uh, follow traditional Jewish law um, Orthodox communities um, uh, certainly um, uh, aspects of even liberal Judaism uh, Masorti Judaism, conservative Judaism uh, considers itself to be a halachic movement and uh, places a huge value on being able to look at the history of, of Jewish practice 
and to show how their contemporary practice develops from that. Uh, it's not so much changing. Um, changing well, implies that something perhaps. was wrong. Well, the word that they would use is unfolding. Right. Is unfolding that that halacha mm-hmm. unfolds uh, throughout the mm-hmm. ages, and and that um, you know Maimonides code is as wonderful as it was the Mishnah Torah. It was not the last code written. There were uh, criticisms and commentaries written on his Mishnah Torah, and later um, uh, codes were written to supersede his Mishnah Torah, the Arba Turim, and then the um, Shulchan Aruch. Even later than that. Um, and, uh, you know, we still have these, these codes and these guides being written today. So do you have to be a certain eminence for your words to, to count, you know, are there people, maybe because they spend time on philosophy and, and studying and so on, whose words mean more than others? Because if you're writing commentaries... Uh, everybody has an opinion. I mean, if you now look in the internet, everybody's writing their commentaries all the time. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> how would it affect today? Well, it, it it depends on how you understand the importance of the author, um, and this was one of the the major reasons why the criticism of Maimonides' Mishnah Torah was so significant. Um, was that you could see who a particular author was, and then know that another author of either more or less um, uh, importance wrote a different opinion. And you could choose on the basis of how well you regarded the knowledge of those individuals, which one to follow. Uh, We have the same thing today. There certainly is a plethora of uh, things being written about Judaism, um, about Jewish practice, about Jewish mysticism, Jewish philosophy, um, about the Bible. And um, we have to, as we look at these, um, be a bit skeptical in looking at the author and the source and, and knowing that we trust the source as someone who has done the proper work ahead of time to be considered an authority on it. Uh, Maimonides' knowledge uh, was vast. And his, his renown for being a true scholar of Jewish literature um, was regarded to be the foremost of his time, if not the foremost of, of all time. So it is still relevant today. Yeah, it is still it relevant. relevant and and uh, those wishing to uh, know how to uh, navigate a particular issue uh, can still get onto the Internet and, and um, search for the Mishnah Torah and, and find Maimonides' uh, you know, discussion and presentation of the different rules that are to be followed when it comes to Jewish practice. And then you can write your commentary on it, like Facebook. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was a precious time. But uh, in what way do you think his influence was so great? Was it because when people read it, they thought about it and commented on it? Or because it was, there were so many truths in it that that had to be accepted? M- Maimonides... Um Mishnah Torah, as we've already discussed, mm-hmm. was the, the predecessor for um, the greatest uh, uh, regarded halakha code, the Chulchan Aruch, um, which is, is still 
um, today in, in terms of the most comprehensive code of Jewish law um, uh, studied and referred to often. It's one of the, the prominent books that you'll find on a rabbi's bookshelf. In, in terms of his philosophy, um, his philosophical orientation uh, was uh, a huge influence to people like Baruch Spinoza, um, who you know, later wrote uh, um, uh, essentially a, a Jewish theology um, that talked about God as, as um, uh, being a natural force within the world. Um, and also, a, a huge, Maimonides was a huge influence on the early reformers with his philosophy that um, Reform Judaism, as it developed first in in Western Germany, uh, was strongly influenced by Maimonides. And, and you know, Geiger, Abraham Geiger, is an example. Um, spent a huge amount of time studying the philosophical works of Maimonides. Um, he didn't care so much about the, the halachic <laughs> works. That wasn't his, his interest. Um, we take Maimonides' understanding of starting with the idea of a non-corporeal God, um, moving into an idea that, that the Bible presents some um, uh, essentially stories that can be seen as um, as uh, representative of, of philosophical steps. I mean, Maimonides will, will say every time that Moses ascends Mount Sinai, um, it's not that he physically ascended Mount Sinai, it's that he achieved a higher um, intellectual mm-hmm. level so that he could come into more direct contact with God um, and by the way, God envisioned as an Aristotelian God is the, the first cause and uh, the, the prime mover from which the matter of the universe gains its substance. That makes sense. Uh, um, I think it, it, uh, it, it can be a profound help to individuals who are, are struggling um, today to reconcile religious beliefs with science. Uh, you know, if you don't very, take it literally. Well, it, it, he, he takes it literally, but he takes it literally in the sense that he's looking for the philosophical mm-hmm. underpinnings of the, the Bible. And um, he's understanding uh, the Bible according to a dictum that um, uh, the Bible speaks in human language. It couches itself in images and in terms that uh, we, with our meager intellects not comparable to God's in any sense, can understand and, and take comfort from. But in, in fact, God does not have a form. Um, God does not have the content attributed to him through the Bible or her through the Bible. Um, I'll, I'll give you an, an, an example. Uh, in um, in Actually, his early writings, the the um, commentary on the Mishnah, Maimonides lists the thirteen um, principles that uh, Jews are supposed to believe at a minimum, and and amongst these is the resurrection of the dead. Uh, something that I also mentioned, he he gained criticism from for not um, uh, seeming to hold a traditional enough um, uh, belief in in its um, truth. 
uh, for Maimonides, the idea of of resurrection, he refers to um, a statement in the Talmud um, that uh, says, for the wicked, um, it's as though they are dead when they are alive. And for the righteous, it is as though they are alive even when they are dead, that their lips, when they're spoken of, move in the grave. And so with this, the idea of immortality, the immortality of the soul, uh, the resurrection, the fact that um, we can take the great lessons from earlier generations and use those in our lives today for good, um, and that's momentous. When we remember the good work and the good deeds and the things that the people did before us to make our world a better place, we bring them life, we bring them immortality, we resurrect their memories, and we bring them blessing. Thank you, Rabbi. (laughs) That was a very good note to end on. And thank you very much, and thank you for listening. Don't forget to listen next Sunday at 10 past 10. And if you've missed this program, you can go to www.planetaudio.org.nz forward slash Radio Shalom. One word. Listen on planetaudio.org.nz.